Welcome to the Human Survival Podcast, where we aim for world cooperation on critical threats to humanity. This show is offered by the Human Survival Project, a grassroots movement for citizens around the world to push for transformation of the United Nations. Our global threats need global cooperation because no nation alone can manage them. Here we have honest conversations about overcoming climate change, destruction of nature, pandemics, nuclear weapons, advancing technology, and other catastrophic threats. But this is not all doom and gloom. We talk solutions here. We can solve this mess humanity is in. We just need to be smart and do the work. To survive, we must see ourselves first as citizens of the human race. To thrive, we must protect what is beautiful about humanity. This is urgent, so let's start. Hi friends, welcome to the Human Survival Podcast. I'm Shelby Martis. Thanks for joining us. So today, we're going to talk about some ideas that you might find absolutely crazy, but I hope that you'll listen anyway with an open mind. With an open mind. Um, what may seem a little crazy is that these days, we are hearing a lot of talk about inflation and about prices going up for a whole bunch of different things. And a lot of people are rightly concerned about it because it impacts their economic uh, situation. But today, we're going to talk about how inflation might actually be good because we have uh, an environmental crisis that humanity is entering where climate change is about to blow up everything. We've got um, more extinctions of species happening than at any time in the last 65 million years since the dinosaurs died off. Um, All this is quite scary and dangerous, and we need ways to actually get control of the situation. Um, And so high prices may be one way to do that. So we're going to unpack this all and talk about it. And with me here for a good chat is my really good friend, Mike Jordan. Uh, He's one of my very best friends. He's wicked smart. He reads a lot. He has interesting ideas. And he and I have a lot of really interesting talks about this and a whole bunch of other things. And so we've been talking lately about this thing with inflation and how it could actually be helpful in some ways. So he's going to be here with us to talk with me about that. Mike, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Shelby. Excellent. So you kind of heard my little introductory spiel here about um, high prices perhaps being a good thing. Uh, What do you think is good about it? A lot of the negative with inflation, I feel like it's psychological. It's not that there isn't a bad aspect to it. It's very practical, too. But we, we fear it. We fear we fear we fear that we're losing what we have. And in a way, we are. But I think this particular time in history, particularly now, just post-COVID with, like you say, climate change barreling toward us really hard and really fast, even compared to scientific models that people have professionalized to uh, undermine, much faster than those. Uh, We have to make a change. And how can we do this? Inflation can be one of the things that moves us to do it, and it will be through higher prices, particularly for oil, coal, gas. It won't be limited to that, but that will be one good aspect. We all really need to and could spend a lot less, buy a lot less than we do, move around a lot less, less casually. There may come a day when we don't have to think about that. But we have to think about it now. Uh, I think we're at the lip of of major change so that that might ease over time. But as long as we're burning our personal fires to get around under the hood or in the home, on the low cost for it, it's heavily subsidized and there's no cleanup attachment to the production or the use of oil. Uh, So the price is artificially low, actually. That induces us to put a lot more of it in the atmosphere than we actually need to. And we can live even better lives than we're living now with some attention to reduced use, efficiencies. And that's not much in the conversation now. 
inflation will force that to happen. Uh, and it will be psychologically uncomfortable. But in the end, it's going to save a lot of physical pain and loss and slow some things like the extinction processes you're talking about. Yeah. You know, just uh, a reference point or a bit of data related to how people could reduce their consumption and still be okay. So the Global Footprint Network is an organization that compiles a ton of data about humans' impact on the planet in the natural world. And they've found that humanity as a whole is using the equivalent of 1.7 Earths meaning we're using 70% more resources and emitting that much more pollution than what the earth can sustainably handle and give us. So that extra 70% is just damaging the planet and destroying our future. But then that sort of consumption or overconsumption does not happen um, equally around the planet. It's the wealthier countries that consume more. So, for instance, the United States sort of leads the pack on consumption. And if all humans on Earth consumed the way Americans do, we would require five Earths. And obviously, we do not have five Earths. And so, really, the wealthier countries could lead the way in, well, need to in terms of just consuming less or else everything gets destroyed. And so, you know, we might value our consumer pleasures or the things we buy for fun or convenience or because we like them, but it's actually destroying the planet and killing our future and making things horrible for our children, you know? Um, so we just, we got to, we have to pull back and, and it's, it's an issue of energy, of course. I mean, the fossil fuels driving climate change, um, but it's all the other things too. It's the wood, it's the plastic, it's the metals, it's the, you know, all of this stuff that goes into these consumer objects that we buy is just, it's tearing apart the planet and we just, we only have one planet. So we just have to pull back, but I don't really see enough people aware enough in pulling back and in making responsible choices. Even though we've had an environmental movement, you know, for over 50 years now, encouraging people to be more responsible, it's just not happening yet. So we need some other way to make that happen. Well, I think these conversations that you have in particular, but many other people too, they're rising. And you've got a podcast, you're talking to a lot of people. It's an enduring historical document too. It has an effect. And as these conversations rise, I think we'll see a reversal in that, particularly as we uh, feel more and more these effects. I was reading this morning in the New York Times, uh, there's a weekly session between Gail Collins and uh, Brett, I forget his last name, but it's a conservative and it's a liberal columnist. And uh, Brett, the, the, the conservative columnist, I've followed him for a time and sometimes I write to him. Uh, he just made a trip to Greenland. This was the subject of their discussion. He's been resistive to the idea. He's not unsophisticated, like, like a lot of people deny this, uh, but it's a kind of a it's a kind of an undermining of the idea that it's urgent that's suffused his writings over the last few years, really bringing down the level from the emergency that it really is. Apparently, as this conversation reflected, he was completely convinced by what he saw in Greenland. And part of this conversation was the recognition that, that uh, I think his name is Steve, Brett Stevens, uh, is now on board with we have to tackle this climate and he's 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 uh he's from that block of people who tends to think otherwise and talk about it i feel some change in the air and i think partly things like we're doing today and, and you you do have done many many times are changing that uh calm conversation clear factual development and an emotional contact too you know without 
without vilification, because we all have to join hands on this. And more and more people are realizing this. There have been a lot of bad sources. And they've been funded by the fossil fuel industry themselves in a kind of a self-protective way. Um, but those things are breaking down, and that's good. And it's really the hammer of the, of the climate disasters that's changing those things. There's a lot of hidden uh, parts of the system, too, that quietly got built up subsidies to the oil and, and gas industry uh i read one analysis from a good source that without those subsidies which uh i, I think yale puts the total subsidies at 11 trillion dollars a year worldwide um without those subsidies gas would cost 12 dollars and 75 cents a gallon it's subsidized, subsidized to that tune. It's kind of a bread and circuses thing. Give the people free bread. That would work for bread, but it doesn't work for oil because oil lingers in the atmosphere. It's after effects. And we see that breakdown happening. More and more people are going to come on board with this. We just have to keep talking about it, and we have to keep talking about it to, to where it matters. It's important to talk with people who are like-minded. Don't put that to the side. But we also have to talk with people and try to bring them along, go where they are, like this Brett Stevens thing. He went to Greenland. That happened because there was there were many conversations and he felt the weight of those conversations and he did the right thing. Yeah. More and more people will do that because we all care about our children. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, even aside from what we want prices to be. I mean, whether we encourage them to be high or not, prices are just going to go up over time anyway of pretty much everything. Like if we just simply do nothing, the limits of the earth are going to impose high prices on us. So for instance, um, energy itself, you know, the, the cost of that impacts our pocketbook, but it also drives everything in the economy because every product you buy requires energy to create it. And so um, fossil fuels are gradually running out. I mean, hopefully we will not burn all the oil that's in the ground or else we'll all die. But it's important to recognize that it is running out. And so today's high oil and gas prices are being blamed on the, the conflict with Russia and Ukraine, which is happening, of course. But the underlying dynamic is that we've already pumped out of the ground the best oil. And though the, the quality of the oil we can access now, it's lower and lower quality over time. And so after they pumped out all the good stuff, they had to go to the shale oil. So there's these shale fields that are just, they're getting, it's basically crappy oil with a lot of extra stuff in it that you have to filter out. So you have to pump more of it and you have to do more processing of it. And over time, it just gets harder and harder to um, do that at a reasonable price, at least without extreme subsidies. Um, actually, while I'm talking about this, I'm going to put in the show notes some link to Nate Hagen's, who has done some really good work about this um, issue of just oil being less plentiful. And so you have to just work harder and harder to get the same barrel of oil so that over time it's going to be more expensive. Or, or even, you know, hopefully as we do make our transition to renewable energies and do more solar uh, panels and wind turbines and such, I feel pretty confident we're going to come across a minerals shortage because we need exponential growth on this front and you've already got exponential growth in you know digital technology or all the other products we buy um, whether it's soda cans or whatever else um, or as the water situation gets worse in the world we're going to have to use massive desalinization plants to give everybody clean water you know take it out of the salt water so we're going to hit a mineral shortage that's going to make solar panels and wind turbines more expensive. And so this wonderful trend we've had over the last several years of renewable energies getting cheaper so that they can compete with fossil fuels, 
we might find those prices go back up again if we run out of minerals. And that also will make the cost of energy more expensive, whether it's fossil fuels or renewables. So a high cost energy future is in front of us, which would just raise the prices of everything we consume. And so, and I'd say also on other things too, whether it's wood, whether it's fish from the oceans, whether it's food that's farmed, you know, these environmental turbulence that we're starting to hit of just the pollution and the overuse of everything, it's going to be harder to create food. And food prices will likely go up because of all this environmental disturbance. And that's other major driver of inflation in the economy. So it's kind of like it's going to happen anyway. And I'm thinking we might as well just get ready for that. And if we can actually put systems in place ahead of time so that we make things more expensive, so that we don't just end up in that horrible future due to inaction, we're going to be better off if we could actually make it high now ahead of time while we can still save some of the planet. Yeah, you're right about that. Uh, because this can be a very soft landing. I think we're due for some very bad decades. Let me be clear about that, because there's a residual nature to this. Accumulation still occurs, and we're on our way still higher with fossil fuel use, despite the pledges by the nations around the world, many of which are going to, despite things like Europe actually meeting the uh, their, their, their projected goals in terms of reduction of fossil fuels. They've done a good job. The United States hasn't really done that, although uh, we have recent new pledges to go uh, uh, cut, I think, by 50% our fossil fuel usage by 2050. I think I have that right. Uh, with an intermediate stage in, uh, coming up at the end of this decade. Um, there are ways to do this, and you point out that that uh, renewable energy is much cheaper than it used to be. It's now the cheapest game in town, as I understand it. You have the problems with storage, but they can be solved and will be solved. And getting there will be really helped if we can all find ways to reduce the usage, our own personal usages or our company's usages, which I find to be easily within reach. In my own life, and not to toot my own horn too much, but I really made this a point. I've gone to a much smaller domicile. I've been very careful about every appliance I put into it. And I've cut my energy use by way over 50%. I would say better than 80% without a doubt. And I'm living my most comfortable life. It actually helps because we tend to throw too many things into our oversized houses anyway. Those can be reconfigured. Those can be refitted. There are a huge number of them, a huge percentage of them without optimal uh, uh, insulation, for instance. There are simple things to be done, even maintaining your current lifestyle completely, whoever you are and whatever you're doing. But using less, you feel good about it. I can say that personally from what I've done so far in my own humble way. Uh, and if we could make this part of the national conversation, it will help us get to where we can rely on renewables, if not completely alone, almost alone. I also think that we need to look at things like ramping up the nuclear baseline and retiring coal and oil plants in numbers. I've done a pretty good job on coal in the last handful of years, maybe decade or two. Uh, it's come down. Uh, in China, it's going back up, I understand, because they're under duress. And, of course, you got the Ukraine-Russia situation, which is driving some desperation choices in Europe right now. But that's temporary. Um, it's really a lot of it's in the hands of people. And we, we, we tend to tell ourselves a wrong story. What I do won't make any difference. I've heard that from a lot of people, and I try gently to bring them around to see it's exactly what can move it. There's a lot of protection out there. Uh, people who, have own, who people who own resources, they want those resources to stay valuable. 
So if you are a, if you own $10 billion worth of oil reserves in the ground, the last thing you want to see is those things go to zero value. And people will fight more or less thoughtlessly to the death on that, even if it's the deaths of others. It's just a human condition. Um, but in terms of systems, we can devise our way out of it by creating systems that are better than that. A lot of that can be driven by personal consumption decisions because the oil companies are not going to pull oil out of the ground that they can't sell. Yeah. And, and I think you're right to point to just overall reduction in the energy people use because there seems to be this common story that people tell or that they hold where we can still just keep keep up our high consumption lifestyle and we're just going to swap out all the energy for renewables like we can just keep doing this and we'll just replace it all with solar panels and wind turbines and nuclear and we'll be fine but the problem is that over the last several years, we've seen an enormous increase in renewable energy, which has been great, but it has not reduced greenhouse gas emissions because the overall use of energy keeps going up and up and up. Like if we had a flatline energy use, we could eventually replace it all. But with the energy consumption going up and up, we're chasing a moving target. If it just keeps going, we can never catch up, no matter how many you know solar panels we build. So somehow we have to um, we have to constrain that so that we can actually catch up to it, so that we can actually reach that goal of fully renewable someday. Um, and, and it's just not going to happen if everyone thinks we have unlimited energy no matter how we get it. Yeah, and part of it is the economics that, that is the 20th century set of economics extended into the 21st century. I remember running across the great book by John Kenneth Galbraith, one of the most uh, cogent economists of all time. Started in the, in the uh, Franklin Roosevelt administration and was working up into the, into the Clinton administration uh, for many different uh, administrations, no matter who, you know, Republican and Democrat, both. In the Affluent Society, a 1958 book, he wrote that things had changed all through human history, whether you were in France at its peak, Napoleonic times, or Louis the, Louis the 16th, uh, or England at its peak. Everyone knew there would be feast and famine cycles because we didn't have a lot of control. Uh, we didn't have a lot of technology. Technology was rising, but not really all that powerful and certainly not enough to damage nature in the way we do now. But around the time of world, between sometime between World War I and World War II, sometime in deep modernization, we have a kind of a certainty. We can produce everything we need. We can produce more than we need. And his idea that really caught me was that the the main focus of business had become, even by then, not to sell products, but to sell desire. And if you look carefully at the way they communicate with all of us, they're instilling desire in us. It's natural enough, but it's important to recognize and try to soften. Whether it's cigarettes, alcohol, cars, what did we see? but a barrage of commercials telling us we need not just the car we have, but we need to replace it in the next few years to be up with the times. We need to smoke cigarettes in order to look sexy and attract mates. Those barrages of commercials continue to this day, and sometimes we do change the system. So it can be done. We changed it with alcohol. We changed it with tobacco. All those commercials that I saw endlessly when I was young, they're not around anymore. You can't advertise in the same way because we changed the rules. And that did change the game in both those cases. I mean, to take, to, to take alcohol for a minute, I mean, tobacco, uh, epidemiologists calculated that over the lifetime of tobacco, it killed 100 million people, and counting, by the way. Uh, but it's hit its peak, at least in the United States and most of Europe. That's a lot of people. I mean, 
that's more than World War II, for instance, right? And yet throughout my young lifetime, we were advertising it to ourselves as a healthy thing. It was cleverly done. Nine out of 10 doctors recommend camels. That's how subtle this stuff gets. So if we can turn and face that and begin a better conversation about energy use, because behind a lot of this, these consumption commercials, which are now about different things, they might be about furniture or they might be about the newest app or the newest phone. Phones are big and update your computer equipment continually. You don't need to do that. Um, we can, if we can turn to face that, we can begin to cut consumption. We need a conversation about it. I, this might have been before your time. I, I'm older than you by, by a bit. When I was a kid, there were a lot of commercials about environmentalism. It was a famous one. It caught my maybe seven-year-old attention deeply. You saw a, a Native American in Native American dress. He was by a highway, an interstate, and he was looking impassively out. And a car went by. There were versions of this. And they tossed out, wadded up trash and cut back to the Native American Indian. Boom, tear coming down his face. There was a whole conversation about this. Most of that really has disappeared. I don't know why, but it's worth thinking about. How can we get that back? How can we get that conversation back? Because it's dirtier than ever. And there are solutions. Yeah. You know, it, it is encouraging that we've made progress in shifting the culture around things like tobacco and alcohol and such. And, and we need to do a similar thing around all kinds of consumption or the overall level of consumption that people have. And I'd say on top of the barrage of advertising, making people want things, there's this additional component of people... Um, I don't know, you might call it keeping up with the Joneses or wanting to have the stuff that somebody else has. And I notice this in so many conversations and even among friends. I, I love you, friends. I talk with you about your behavior. But um, there's people even who say all the right things about their environmental concern. Like they say that they understand climate change is happening. They say that they understand the destruction of nature, but they're still buying stuff like crazy. They're still living in a house larger than they need. They're still, you know, going on a plane to go have fun somewhere, despite how much carbon is burned by airplanes. Um, they're just buying stuff they don't need. You know, there's like the one click and you have your Amazon package arrive and don't even think about where it comes from, like the earth. And so it's like, even among well-intentioned people who do understand, they're still not changing their behavior. And there's this attitude in our culture that seems to leave everything to the individual to decide what's best for them or how they should behave or act or consume. But we've just seen, we've had that for decades of we just leave it up to individuals to do the right thing, but even the ones who understand are not doing the right thing. So it, that's what leads me to think that we need higher taxes and such in order to really have a policy driver to get people to stop consuming so much because I, I don't think they're going to do it on their own. I agree on on, on, with all that you said, and I, I'd point a couple of things out. One is that a carbon tax, which is most economists converge, you meet this problem with a carbon tax. It's direct and it would hit the right things. The calculations can be done. So there's a tool and it is tax. You see Europe doing it with gasoline and they have a much better ratio than we do. Um, I would say about leaving it up to the individual, that is a subtle thing. Because if we did just leave it up to the individual, clean and free, that might give us one result. But what we really have is rhetoric about leaving everything up to the individual and an onslaught, a psychological, statistical-based onslaught by very sophisticated madmen type types. Uh, a traditional like the advertising company <laughs> you're talking about influence right 
and that dr- is what drives individual decision making. We feel like we're making our own individual decisions, but we are bathed in advertising. You know, as well as uh, we've talked about this, you can say a word like Legos. Just say the word and you will see in your stream on the Internet. In a lot of cases, I'm not sure it's true 100 percent, but it's true a lot because I've seen it come up with me. You think your phone's off. You think there are no microphones listening to you, but you will see pop up within hours. I think even tens of minutes advertisements for Legos. I've seen that happen. I went into Walmart with my son. He bought a Lego set. He used his own credit card to do it. My credit card stayed in my pocket. We were 10 minutes in Walmart. Then we went back to my tiny house and he built it. I brought up YouTube. I know my own YouTube feed, which is algorithmic based, right? And son of a gun, there in my YouTube feed, like third down, was a series of advertisements for Legos. It was only a proximity thing. They acquired my phone signal is located within Walmart next to his. That's what I'm thinking it was. It almost has to be. I didn't need to do the transaction. The watchfulness of the current systems is stunning. And even the older advertising feeds influenced us deeply. And it bu- it builds on what's natural within us, too. So this is bigger. You know, it's a leverage. We we do. You think about the way way the animal kingdom mates and we're in the animal kingdom birds build a nest and they build a nest to attract a mate Uh, an animal does a kind of a dance to outdo other males let's say so that prospective mates say i want that we're built like that too and we've channeled it into the size of our houses and Things like the speed and muscle of our cars. Are they luxury cars? Which means extra fuel consumption. Priuses don't tend to attract mates. But Camaros do. Or at least we think they do. And I think they really do. That's a thing to turn and face. And if we do, we can dismantle this. thing. We can retune the system to drive us to lower usage. And it will happen fast. But it does mean a reforming of our natures by rule sets. We've done it over and over again. But this rhetoric about every man for himself, every woman for herself, I think that is perhaps subconsciously, in many cases, the very nub of the problem. Because somebody who wants to sell a product knows darned well how to say the right thing. And it can be quite indirect. And I go back to that nine out of 10 doctors recommend. They protected themselves. We're not saying it's healthy for you, but they were. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let me lay an idea on you and see what you think. So I think we've established that um, the road to ruin is just trusting individuals to be nicer and be more responsibility, you know, be more responsible. It's just not going to happen. And but at least in the large scale. Quick. Yeah. Can I qualify that real quickly? Please, I think please. Um, with all things being equal, that statement might be true. I mean, I trust human nature, but what we have is, I'm going to use the word predator and I want to use it in a very neutral sense. We have people who want to influence people in order to get into their wallets. We fetishize those wallets as, let's say, made attractors, prestige attractors. And so we have people who are very good at influence. We don't really have a situation where human nature is left alone. And I think you're talking about human nature as we know it in modern times, which has all these, it has all these conversations around us that drive us in certain directions. And it's the pursuit of money and profit that make that happen. Yeah. Yeah, completely. So if we're going to drive against that situation, I think we need public policy tools to do it. And I think we need um, taxation of natural resources. And so the system I would love for governments to create 
And for even this to happen on an international basis, especially, would be that we place taxes on oil, coal, natural gas, wood, um, plastic, fish. Um, it taxes when nature is turned to agricultural land um, or turned yeah. nature is turned to development of buildings and roads and whatever. Like every time you cut down a forest and turning it into a parking lot, there should be a tax. And so if you tax all these natural resources at their source, it would make all kinds of different products through the economy more expensive and discourage production of them. But if you tax it at its source, it's a way to actually have governments get at it because it would be nearly impossible or just very difficult to tax the whole range of billions of consumer items. But if you actually tax it at its source when it is extracted from nature and make that cost really high, and I don't know what the number is going to be, you'd probably have to just ratchet it up and then keep an eye on consumption of various things. And you just keep ramping it up until it does put a dent in people's consumption until these things level off and, and consumption comes back down to a place where, you know, the planet can handle it. And so this taxation, it would help the environment, but it also would give us a pot of money that we could use for good things. So it would give you a pot of money that you could subsidize the good stuff, like subsidize good environmentally sustainable food production or subsidize people, you know, eating vegetables instead of beef or subsidize um, renewable energy instead of oil. You know, you can take this money and funnel it to where you actually encourage the good stuff and make sure that the good products people need for survival are low enough cost. So then you're raising the price of most things, but the stuff that's essential, you can keep those prices down. Um, it's just a matter of cycling the resources in the way that makes the kind of consumer behavior we need. You know, the irony of this, I like your idea. I think it's, it's good and accurate. The irony is we might not even have to increase taxes. And here's why. Not that I'd be against that, particularly a targeted carbon tax and the kind of taxes that you mentioned where you discourage meat since it's a big contributor to climate change gases. Uh, and you ratchet up from below. I like that. So that you you softly come in. You don't do a discontinuity with the system. You bring it up over time. And you have to have a working government to do that. A government that people respect. And you have to get rid of some of this anti-government, anti-regulatory, uh, wild push that's grown up within us. Take oil subsidies in particular, fossil fuel subsidies. Uh, I was listening to a climate scientist talk about this just a couple of days ago. YouTube. He had a very nice YouTube uh, program on it. And uh, he pointed out what I'd read in another source, too. I think the IPCC UN reports. There's a cost that's been estimated to mitigate uh, carbon going into the atmosphere, carbon and the, the five or six other gases. But they're all shorthanded by carbon. We're talking methane. We're talking uh, perfluorocarbons in their two or three other classes. Um, I believe the cost that climate scientists through their bodies working together have estimated would be $2 trillion a year. Sounds like a lot until you look at the GDPs of the major nations. Uh, much higher. The GDPs, not the government funding. Yeah, the, the government entire funding. economy. Yeah, the entire economy. Uh, it's really a drop in the bucket. And now let's put it in the context of oil subsidies themselves. Take that, oh, it's 5 to $10 trillion a year. Uh, I'm solid about that. Take that, let's take the low figure, $5 trillion. 
they're estimating $2.4 trillion a year would take care of the carbon going into the atmosphere, would stop it, bring it quickly to a halt, and allow us to work with a carbon-neutral economic base. All the engines, all the things that we do, carbon would be zeroed out, $2.4 trillion a year. They could be, you know, there are error bars on that, but we're talking good ballpark ratios. You could do that with the oil subsidies and have money left over. You know, um, um, some might call me blindly naive, but I have to just believe that citizens are going to rally around this stuff and push for what needs to happen because it's really the only way. And there's this tussle I hear in public conversations about helping the environment or helping climate. Some people point toward, um, I don't know, the bad guys doing bad things like the big companies who are using their money to um, corrupt our information space and corrupt governments and, you know, the big powers that be. There's other people that point more toward individuals making better choices, better consumption, consuming less, whatever it is. Both are absolutely true. And for this to change, they both have to happen in unison. So I hear a lot of people who say something like, well, my individual consumption doesn't make that much difference because really the problem is those big bag fossil fossil fuel companies, for instance, or those big horrible rich guys. But for politics to change, it requires culture changing. And so we need to show our politicians that we're willing to live with less consumer stuff. We're willing to live with less fossil fuel. You know, we're willing to cut back. You know, all these kind of changes we've talked about, like earlier I was talking about how we need to tax resources to make them more expensive. That's a hard sell for politicians. Um, because they see everybody consuming like crazy and is not really, you know, most people are not demonstrating that they're willing to live with less. So a politician is going to assume that's a losing argument. I'm never going to win an election if I talk about people consuming less and talk about taxing them. But if more and more of us start to pay attention to our consumer behavior and we start to cut back and live a more modest lifestyle that the earth can handle, then the politicians are going to start to observe that. And so there is this really tight link between individual behavior and the change of systems that we need to do both at the same time. We need to take care of our own, like get our own house in order and deal with our own consumption, while at the same time being a strong citizen to get those systems to change. And and they're both like that. I mean, you can't do one without the other. You have to drive systems and individuals at the same time. Yeah, I I think that's well well observed. They're deeply connected. And an interesting aspect of it is this. We don't even need to influence the populations. I mean, the, the politicians, right? Politicians. Um, if we change our behaviors and we start to consume less, the need for legislation is over. The oil companies can't sell what people won't buy. I point to the information sphere because that is a key point. And for that, we either need major changes in behavior uh, to come from somewhere internal. I don't know how those conversations get raised. Now, people like Greta Thunberg are doing a great job of this. There's a counter voice, but they're pushing against a pretty big edifice. The information change came about politically and probably needs rule changes. And there'll be rule changes about about, uh, consequences for lying publicly over and over and over, whether it's in a, in a commercial uh, way, 
I mean, I think we all feel like that should be penalized. Somebody lies to you about a product. They sell you a machine and you get it home and you plug it in and it doesn't work. You darn well should get your money back. And if the person or the group does that 100 times in a row, there should be consequences for that. Um, we don't really have that system. People can, people can say that uh, climate change is not happening over and over and over and over again. But it is. And it's killing people by the millions this year, next year, and the year after. And the number is going to grow. That's a lot of lives to be saved through simple systemic changes. As you point out, it can be a pure behavioral change by the individual consumer. This can all be consumer side, but the information is problematic right now. And we're probably at low ebb. I feel like in this country, we're at low ebb. I don't think I've ever seen information tainted so much as it is right now. And I think we can put a lot of the cause at the feet of social media. Uh, untrammeled social media. We didn't understand what this would do, the, the weaknesses that it would bring out in us or exploit. But we can turn to face that. Uh, and I think we probably have to, and that could be in the, in, in the political sphere. But it does come down to individual behavior. I'll tell you this, too, from my own personal experience. Because of the changes I made in my own life, going to a very small house, being much closer to nature every day, using a lot less fossil fuel products, uh, using a lot less products, buying a fraction of what I used to buy thoughtlessly. I feel good every day when I get up. Psychologically, it's a big boost. And it's not just from feeling like I did a good thing, although it does come from that too. It's because necessarily you're closer to nature then when you're when you're in one of those really big you know we've increased the size of our houses year by year decade by decade very quickly when i was a kid and i'm alive right now the size of houses were a third of what they are now, a third on average these are places you disappear into you have whole empty rooms and as you become more affluent and the level of this seeps down, more people can afford this fractionally than ever before, you might get a second house. Some people have a third and a fourth house. You might own 12 bathrooms if you really counted them all. People you know and see every day do. They're empty. They're not necessary. They're replication. This is what we can turn to face. And it comes partly from individual behavior too. And I know my... I want to I want to raise my hand and plead guilty here. Uh, I've been raised in the culture. So when I see a person with a huge house, oh, you have 11 bathrooms here. I'm impressed. And it shows. And that's something that I need to stop myself. And it's work. We can do that because the incentives to do that come from the praise and the respect of others. And nothing else. Nobody needs all that. In fact, it weighs on you. And that's what I find out by going counter to that and shrinking. It's a better life. As more of us do it, and you see a lot of 20-somethings doing this. You're talking about tiny houses. You're talking about people living the, the van life and driving around from, you know, surf place to surf place. These are, these are not bad things. Um, People are finding out, I believe, that there's a lot of beauty and freedom in this. And they can do the things they want to do. Every machine that you might own comes with an owner's manual, implicit or otherwise. You have to know how to take care of it. And you're going to use it. And that takes time and attention. Things own us as much as we own them. And we should be aware of that in every transaction that we make. Just think about every single thing we buy and think about whether you really need it, whether it's, you know, a car, a piece of furniture, some decoration you put on the wall, a napkin, a paper towel, 
a paper plate. Like just every single thing you touch. Just think about it. Do I really actually have to have this? And when you ask that question, you realize, well, okay, maybe I don't need that thing. Maybe I can find a way to do without that, you know, but it just requires some self training to do that. So. And to bring it back to your original point, inflation is one way to do that because that imposes a cost and a penalty. And it's one that's a feedback to us that we need to hear and listen to. Too much money, easily printed, chasing too few products, which will dwindle further as we use up the planetary resources, as it gets harder to find lithium, steel, uh, oil. We'll still have to use some. We have to have some things like plastics. We want as few of those as possible, but they won't go away 100%. We have to make space for some, but not this crazy rush of plastics we have now flow past us like a Niagara, and most of them are not necessary at all. I mean, I've taken to a friend of mine pointed out that I was using a lot of plastic cutlery, and he was right. And I've taken to carrying around a knife, a fork, and a spoon that I use over and over, silverware, easy to carry. And since then, I haven't used any plastic cutlery. And it's better, not worse, because plastic cutlery doesn't work all that well. Well, and, and taking that as an example, um, you know, some people will just make that choice as you have. A lot of people won't think about it because plastic, a fork is basically free. You know, they just give it to you at the fast food place and nobody thinks about it. But if that plastic fork cost a dollar or that plastic fork cost two dollars, then you'll think about it and you might make that choice to bring your own or use less. And, and one additional benefit of making these things expensive is that you might see more recycling. So, you know, somebody buys a soda can, they might just throw that in the garbage or they litter or whatever. But if that can cost $3, you're going to bring it back and recycle it because it costs something, you know, or, or across the whole economy, there's things that could be recycled that currently are not because it's so much cheaper to just get new resource. So all the plastics, it's far cheaper to just make new plastic than to figure out how to recycle what we have, or whether it's wood or whether it's metal or whatever. It just, it gets used and then throws, gets thrown away when we need a circular economy where we reuse all the substances we take from earth. And the way to incentivize that is to make it all expensive. Then people are going to recycle it and stop, you know, getting no resource from Earth. So, and however you however you raise that price to threshold, and it is threshold, uh, you'll hit a point where it becomes it pays someone to find that and recycle it. You see that around the neighborhoods. You see, you see people at the margins living off going around and getting everybody's uh, aluminum cans. Those people are performing a service, and it's because of governmental incentive. In this case, it's a kind of taxation, you know, the, 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 the extra you pay for each bottle uh, that then becomes redeemable. People are making their livings off that. And these people would be diff it would leave much more difficult lives without it. Uh, so it can be taxed or it can be inflation. And you'll hit a threshold and those things, instead of accumulating in the environment, will disappear. There was a beautiful example. I read this about two years ago. It was a comprehensive article in the New York Times, and it caught my attention because I had moved to New York City in the late 70s or begun to go up there, moved there in the 80s. And when I got there from the South, Richmond, Virginia, what I saw astonished me. I saw carcasses of automobiles by the sides of roads. They would sit there for weeks or what seemed like months. They'd get stripped down of expendables like their radios you know people would descend upon them and take things away but the carcasses were left and i had always assumed that it was some negligence of new york city but it really was because this article explained what had happened they showed the pictures i remembered the pictures so clearly 
you know, like the BQE, there's a, a dead car right there. It's rusted. It's been sitting there for a long time. And there's another one down the street. They were all over the place. And then they weren't there. And I never even noted the transition. Here's what happened. The whole time, New York City was hauling those cars out as fast as they could, but they were overwhelmed. People were abandoning cars. But then one day, and it was a particular moment in time, the price for scrap metal passed the threshold. And somebody could make a couple of hundred bucks or a thousand bucks grabbing that carcass and hauling it in to the scrapyards. And all those cars disappeared over the course of a few years. No further effort required. And that reduced, yeah, and as that happened, that reduced the need for more mining which is devastating to nature. I mean, you have to strip all of nature off the ground before you can dig for those metals. So yes. that's, you know, fewer metals they had to dig out of the ground. It's beautiful, you know? And we have counter trends because of the way our economy works. There are things called fast fashion, you know of this, and there's also fast furniture. And one of the stores I like, Ikea, really specializes in fast furniture, stuff not designed to last all that long. You like the design, but it's not going to last a long time. You move it twice and it's all wobbly and boom. It's cheap and easy. Cheap and easy. So it increases the waste stream hugely. And let's take the IKEA furniture, company I like. But let's look at it. It's not just wood anymore. There are plastics all throughout those things. They don't biodegrade. So these enormous streams are beginning to clog up our landfills. Places like China are not taking our garbage anymore. Mexico, they've cut it off. Uh, I, I believe both Mexico and China have. They used to be big repositories for the stuff that we didn't want anymore. Uh, I know Ghana gets a lot of the fast fashion clothes, and it clogs up their beaches, uh, clogs up their landfills, and they have much less control than we do. The reason is they can be done cheaply, really cheaply. So your shirt is $5 instead of $13.95. You buy them and you toss them away. It's built into our psychologies. We like novelty. That has to be addressed systemically. And it can be either by interdiction of it through taxation uh, or life cycle cost. That's an interesting one, life cycle cost, which Europe tends to specialize in. Or it can be by making an information stream that recognizes what's going on instead of hiding it. We have an information stream for a number of reasons that has become more and more about hiding things that certain groups that are making a lot of money don't want to have out there. And we can understand why they do it. We all want to make money. We need to de-emphasize the role of money in our society. After all, it's just a number. Life is about what you are, where you are, the sensations that you get, the pleasures that you get. And more and more, you realize it's contact with nature. And all these things isolate us. We're in rooms. We don't see the outside. And we obsessively arrange and rearrange those rooms, the furniture in them, and we move all the time. We don't need to do all that. And we would lead better lives, not worse. And some of the impetus for that is in our information stream so that we don't even realize that we have these alternatives, that we once lived the alternatives. We were the alternatives. Yeah. I want to pivot here and aim toward the finish line on this conversation. But before we wrap up, I just want to maybe put some icing on this cake or this idea of um, causing high prices. Because something that we've not acknowledged yet is that as we intentionally cause prices to be higher due to taxation, it could hurt some poorer people. And that has to be recognized and we have to work around it. So one of the things I hear people say about inflation is how hard it is on the checkbook and the pocketbook of a, of a hardworking family or a family that doesn't have a lot. And 
Along with these new ideas of taxation, we need to include public programs that help lower income people manage that. Because if you did simply inflate all the prices without such a thing, it would really hurt some people who might already be struggling to make ends meet. And so to make all this work, we need to have a culture where people look out for each other and we have public systems in place to look out for our friends and neighbors and family who have less money than the rest of us. And internationally, we would need a system that helps poorer countries around the world make this transition because we do have an interconnected global economy. So I don't want to pretend that, say, this is only a United States thing or whatever country because we have a global economy where we're all in the same marketplace purchasing stuff, purchasing resources. And if you raise the prices in some places, it'll kind of raise it everywhere. And so whether it's the poorer people within a country or various poor countries, um, we have to have resources in place and funnel them differently. So as you do impose taxes on resources, a lot of those funds need to go to the lower income people of the world to help them manage it. At the very least, to help them buy food, buy fuel for their car, buy a home or you know, rent a home or you know, make sure those basic needs are met. And that could happen through just um, a payment, such as a universal basic income, which is getting more you know talk these days. But it come come through specific programs, like here's food assistance. You know, here's a coupon you take to the grocery store to buy your groceries, or here's a coupon you use to pay your rent, or here's a coupon you use to fuel your car so you can still get to work. You know, but those are not for everybody. Those are just for the people who really need that help to make it get by. So, um, so anyway, I did just want to offer that idea because that does make it a more complete system that doesn't hurt people. It's worth saying about that that it's not a very costly thing to do either. A lot of people, groups, NGOs, economists have calculated what it would take to raise everybody who's living in extreme poverty. There's a definition for that. Uh, and it's absurdly low to us. It's, uh, I think extreme poverty is now something like living below $2 a day. But in a lot of places, it's, that's perfectly good, you see. Um, to raise everybody above extreme poverty relative to their local environment looks very different in a Kenyan village than it does in San Francisco would cost the world, the world, about $66 billion a year. There's probably some updates to that. I read that figure three or four years ago. That's we a small number. People. It's a small number. It's a tenth of the visible U.S. defense budget. We wouldn't notice it. And it would make us many, many factors more secure than, say, more tanks, which are, are a draw on Earth's resources. And you wouldn't have to change people's lives dramatically and say, bring everybody up to the same level. You can have disparities. That's not necessarily bad. But if somebody is hungry in a Kenyan village, you can raise them up to where they're not hungry for very little money. And I think the last time I read this, the number of people living in extreme poverty out of the 8 billion people was about 660 million, which was the lowest proportion ever. We've actually done a good job. We don't talk about that much. I don't know why. I wish I, I did know why. But I, when I read that figure, I read it in a specific place, and I looked at the source, and I trusted the source, but I said, can this be right? So I did a quick tour around other NGOs and governmental sources, and they converge. I don't think there's a lot of doubt about this. It would have, it would have a ripple effect throughout the economy, things would change, but we would be changed from a baseline of people being fed because that's basically it. You need clean water, you need food, and you need basic shelter. 
that's really it. And we forget that that's it. And if that's what you have from my own purposeful movement in that direction, life gets a lot better, even in a high technology, high resource environment like I've grown up in my whole life. In fact, that's where the greatest opportunity is. That's a personal thing. Not everybody would make that change, but I would say, try it. You'll like it. <laughs> nice. Well, I feel like we should wrap this up because we've been at it for a little while. This has been a lot of fun and interesting, and uh, I've enjoyed it. So thank you, Mike. Good. Me too. See nice. you soon, Shelby. All right. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us. I appreciate you being with us and look forward to talking with you soon. Take care. Hey, wait, before you go, I need your help. It's small, but really important. Simply listening to this show is great, but doing things and taking action is way more powerful. This is not just a podcast. This show is the voice of a very ambitious grassroots organization, the Human Survival Project. We must transform the United Nations so it's strong enough to manage our global catastrophic threats. Making change happen on this ambitious scale is only possible when people participate and work together. So please, like and subscribe to this show, or leave a comment. You know how this works. With likes and subscribes and comments, you're telling the computer algorithms that you care about this show. So the algorithms will then recommend this show to other people. This is how we grow and reach a bigger audience. And this growth is really important for a global grassroots movement trying to improve how the world operates. We can't do this alone. We need you. Beyond liking and subscribing, here are three other ways you can help. One, share this show with a friend, person to person. A growing audience powers this cause. Two, come to our website www.thehumansurvivalproject.org. Three, at the website, sign up for our email newsletter and keep up with our progress. I promise you'll like what you see, and it'll help you talk to your friends about what must be done to protect humanity. Thanks to Moby for the show's theme music, and thanks to you for listening, for helping us grow, and for speaking about these important issues with everyone you know. Have an outstanding day. I'll talk to you soon.